0: Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 18, Acts 18, and um, if you grabbed one of those Bibles in the back from the rack there, uh, you are welcome to do that. In fact, if you don't have your own Bible, you're welcome to keep that and take that home with you. We'd love for you to have that as a gift to you this morning. That would be page 541 in that Bible, page 541. Acts 18. While you're turning there, so let me uh, throw this out to you too. Um, a little bit of help in the, the search, the, the, the pastoral search job. If you go to our church's Facebook page, there's actually a little blurb there about the position. And if you just get on that and you like it and share it, um, it'll actually multiply to your followers and and so on and so forth so it's a way to broadcast a little bit more uh, broadly too so you can help be part of this process and uh, we know we got a couple of human resource people um, that we've interacted with and uh, Pete Anderson does a little bit of that uh, too at his job and we know at this time of year uh, especially between like November and December is notoriously slow for any type of job movements and so on and so forth so um, you know we're just kind of anticipating that here around the holidays but still if we get that out there and Get as many eyeballs on it as possible. That that can only help, right? So you can help us out with that process. So if you have any questions about Facebook or whatever, uh, don't don't see me. Um, no, I just get on Facebook and church's Facebook page. I see Dan Austin. He knows uh, Dan's now. Don't see Dan either. <laughs> see Rebecca. She'll uh, <laughs> strike three. Okay, there we go. Church's Facebook page, you just share that, like it, and it'll automatically kind of go around to your your connections and and so on. So Acts chapter 18, and I'm going to start reading in verse 18 read through the end of the chapter. So this is picking up from Paul's time in Corinth. So Paul is leaving the city of Corinth here and journeying home, and this is the conclusion of his second missionary journey. So after this, Paul stayed many days longer. In Corinth, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, them being Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up, greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's pray. God, we just ask again for your blessing as we open your word for a few minutes here. Regardless of what kind of week we've had, regardless of what is going on in our lives right now, God, whether we're in the valley, whether we're on the mountaintop, we all need a word from you. We need to hear from you. We need your truth to guide us, direct us, instruct us. Some need a word of correction today. Some need a word of encouragement. God, your spirit knows all, discerns the needs of every heart, so we pray that you would minister your truth to us accordingly. God, as we just saying, we truly, we have nothing to offer, but your spirit and your truth are everything. So we pray that you would work today. And as always, we pray this for the glory of Jesus Christ and the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the things I want to feature today as I walk down here and grab my remote that I left on the front pew is uh, this, this concept of uh, support staff. And we'll get there in a minute. But uh, th- this group of people surrounding Paul, and taking place in his mission in ministry, and it's significant. And we'll unpack that here in a minute. I want to start with this. Um, Some of you may be familiar with uh, the name Marcus Luttrell. Mark Luttrell was a a Navy SEAL and uh, kind of made well-known through his book and a movie made about, uh, about him called Lone Survivor. And it was about him and his SEAL team, three guys in, in Afghanistan fighting, and uh, his, his team was, was, was wiped out there. He survived, and uh, so the story is about just that, how that unfolded and then how he has dealt with it since then, being the lone survivor of, of that group. Uh, there was a man named uh, Dick Couch, and to be honest with you, I don't know if Dick Couch did this on purpose or not, but he wrote a couple books that track through Navy SEAL uh, training. And he just happened to track through uh, the class, class 228, that was Marcus Luttrell's graduating class from uh, SEALs uh, training. And uh, I wanna read to you an excerpt from the speech that was given at Marcus Luttrell's graduation uh, along with the rest of the SEALs who graduated in this class. And this is what this, this general writes or, or said in this speech. In closing, I want to ask you a favor. We SEALs get our share of recognition for what we do. In the teams, there are a number of non-SEALs who work very hard to make us look good, to make you look good. I'm talking about the technicians in the armory and the dive locker, the supply people, and the administrative personnel. They deserve our respect and appreciation. So at least once a day, I want you to compliment one of them or give them a good word. They do so much for us and seldom get the credit for it. There's another group of warriors that we SEALs are privileged to serve with. Men who seldom get the recognition that they deserve. I'm talking about the combatant crewmen in our special boat unit. Many of you will fight alongside them. These men are professionals in their own right, and if you don't think running across a state 5C on a moonless night at 40 knots doesn't take the right stuff, then you have a good deal more to learn. The combatant crewmen in the special boat units are our brother warriors treat them with respect. I love that. This moment of graduation, what he's challenging these guys with is to be grateful for the team that supports them. In essence, what he's saying is, you guys get all the glory, but if none of these other people do their job, you don't get to do yours. If the ammunition isn't stocked, guess what? You're not firing anything at the enemy. If if the boat drivers don't know how to get you there safely, you're not going to carry out your mission. If you don't have enough food in your packs, I mean, on and on, right? And he's saying it it takes this team, this group of people, to make you successful. And we see that here in Acts chapter 18. I love it. We meet Apollos. We see Priscilla and Aquila, who we met last week. Remember, tent makers, blue-collar workers. And we see how dependent Paul is on them. And I want us to understand that again today, that this missional effort that we are part of takes all of us. It's not reserved just for the trained professionals, the pastors, the elders, the deacons, hub group leaders, the missionaries, right? If we don't have us, we don't accomplish anything. That comes across here in this passage. We'll unpack that a little bit more in a minute. But let's start here where Luke starts at the conclusion of Paul's second missionary journey. Paul journeys to Jerusalem and Antioch as his second missionary journey comes to its conclusion. So we see here at the beginning in verse 18 that Paul had stayed on for some time in Corinth. And if you remember from last week, uh, this was after a quite fearful beginning. Remember, the second missionary journey was not all you know, unicorns and rainbows for Paul. Uh, They had Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and the indifference shown in Athens and the opposition in Corinth. This was hard, and we talked about that last week. So much so that God, uh, uh, the Lord Christ, appeared to Paul in a dream and said, Paul, don't be afraid. Keep working. And we unpacked that. Why did God have to make that that vision, give Paul that vision? I believe it's because Paul was discouraged. Paul was afraid. He was human, just like us. He says that in 1 Corinthians, right? We unpacked that last week. He was beat up. fears within. He's struggling. But he stays on. It's another reminder to take God's promises to heart and keep doing what God has called us to do. Ministry is neither easy or quick. It's hard. And sometimes we have to stay at it for a long time. Paul modeled that for us. And at the end of this, he wasn't forced out. He left when the Spirit led him out. We see here that he leaves with Priscilla and Aquila. We met them last week. These tent makers who he happened to meet there in Corinth who had been forced out of their home in Rome. God brings them together as partners in ministry in Corinth and they become significant, lifelong partners. Part of this team. We'll see this again in a little bit. Then there's this interesting note here that Luke gives us. Paul got a haircut. All right. Apparently, he wanted to look good when he got to Jerusalem in Antioch, right? Um, he cut his hair on the way back. Luke gives us a little more information than that. It wasn't just because Paul was vain. Um, apparently, it was a part of some sort of unspecified vow. And honestly, I, I don't know what this vow was. Commentators don't know what this vow uh, was. But it seems most likely it's somehow connected to Paul's Jewish heritage And maybe a step beyond that, one of the most popular suggestions by commentators is that it was probably part of some sort of Nazarite vow. So if you want some riveting study this afternoon, go home, Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, and you can learn all about the Nazarite vow. And that will help inform this possibly. But what these vows ended with, usually, was a sacrifice being made in Jerusalem, which would truly fit with where Paul is going here. Um, some speculate that this vow, whether it was Nazarite or not, could have been some sort of personal vow of thanksgiving offered to God for his protection, the promised protection that he gave Paul while he was traveling, uh, that it was uh, that. Daryl Bach, in his commentary, kind of leans towards this. Whatever the specifics are, um, I think we could say a few things, um, at least by way of summary and probably by way of a baseline. This making and keeping of a vow on Paul's behalf expressed at some level his his level of devotion and commitment to God. You didn't make vows if you weren't committed and devoted to God. I think it also demonstrates here the act of someone who was a pious Jew. And what we see in Paul is Paul often throughout his ministry demonstrated loyalty to the traditions of his heritage without compromising the gospel, Paul was a master at this. Right? He wasn't bound by the law. He's very clear on that. He wasn't bound by the law to his heritage or to make such a vow, but he did it out of devotion. And I believe partly he, he did it out of sensitivity to his bro- Jewish brothers and sisters. We read this later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This isn't a stretch to say this. Paul writes that to the Greeks, I become a Greek. To the Jews, I become a Jew. Uh, Paul maintains sensitivities for opportunities to present the gospel without compromising the gospel. So I think this is part of the reason why Paul does this. He gets his hair cut. He ends up in verses 19 through 21 in Ephesus. Now this is an important introduction. I believe this is intentional on Luke's part. Ephesus will become Paul's base of operations for his third missionary journey. He spends three years in Ephesus. Twice as long as he had spent anywhere else. Corinth, up to this point, had been the longest at a year and a half, but he will end up spending three years in Ephesus. It becomes a very important place. It's a strategic city. It's not the capital of Asia, but it is the seat of the provincial administration. It connected the Greco-Roman world with Asia Minor. Um, At one point, this is kind of fascinating, it used to have a significant harbor. And they, uh, they had to dredge a river that has since silted up. And since that river silted up, Ephesus actually sits seven miles inland. So you can't see that necessarily today, uh, but it was strategic in that point uh, as well. So Paul continues uh, showing us that he's strategic where he goes. This is going to be significant in the next chapter. The worship of the goddess Artemis is very significant uh, here in Ephesus. Uh, she was the goddess of fertility. and It was a city of about a quarter of a million people. Here's another note I want us to know uh, to, to point out as we go through this. Ephesus was in Asia. Everybody remember when we've talked about Asia already with Paul? Asia was the place earlier in Paul's second missionary journey where he wanted to go, and God said no. And he redirected him. Remember that? God said no. Directed him away from Asia. Now it's open. Now Paul is in Ephesus, one of the most significant cities in Asia, doing the work of ministry. And remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. Sometimes God says, and it doesn't make sense to us, sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says, wait. Sometimes God says stuff and we're like, you make no sense to me, God. And and Paul's motives were pure, right? To share the gospel in in Asia was a pure motive. But God said, no, not yet. That's your timetable, Paul. It's not mine. But see what God does? God's always doing his thing. And here now, Paul has Asia. One of the things he has now, though, that he didn't have then was Priscilla and Aquila. And maybe that's part of the reason God said, wait, I'm going to introduce you to a couple who are going to become significant. So again, let this encourage your faith to trust God. He always knows what he's doing. And now we are in Asia. He goes to the synagogue there. And he reasons, that's becoming quite the buzzword in Acts, isn't it? He reasons, which means he engages, he interacts, he gets to know the people, but he also proclaims truth. And in Ephesus, there's actually a decent response to him in the synagogue. They actually ask him to stay longer. This time, though, Paul says, no, not this time. Um, he, he, he says, I've I, I got to leave. He promises to return, if God wills, which is always the driving force for Paul in his ministry, And it was what would lead him to return if God desired. One thing he does do, though, in verse 19, he leaves Priscilla in Aquila there to watch over things. And I can't emphasize again enough how significant they are. And I can't emphasize enough again that these were ordinary blue-collar people, tent-makers. The thing that sets them apart and makes, that, makes them significant to kingdom work is that they are simply willing to go and do whatever God asks them to do. They're kicked out of Rome. They settle in Corinth. God calls them to go to Ephesus. They do that. I mean, part of it is me. It's like, no, man, I already got kicked out of my home. I settled in Corinth. We're good. The business is going good. But no, they pick up and say, there's a need for us. You know what I thought about here is, is in our time uh, when we go over to Europe for the, um, the, the CMED conferences, I, I've met a number of missionaries there over the years uh, who are what you would call second career missionaries. And that's often been a, a challenge and encouragement to me. These are, these are people, I, I think maybe not unlike Priscilla and Aquila, they, they had a trade, they had a job, and they spent years doing this. And then all of a sudden they, they, they get older, their kids graduate out of the house, and now they're at a point where, um, hey, we're a little bit more free. And, and they say, hey, God's. God's given us the ability. I've been an administrator. I've been an engineer. I've been this. And, and, and they'll go over, and, and they've got missionaries over there who are starting in their, you know, 40s or, or whatever uh, to, 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 to be second career missionaries. Be open to that. I'm just going to leave that right there, right? You don't have to be, you know, ah, you're a 20-year-old right out of seminary to go be a missionary. Maybe at 45 years old. What? That's old. Yeah, well, maybe God's calling you. Priscilla and Aquila are a great example of that. They had a trade. They were older. And yet here they are, traveling. What makes them power and effective isn't necessarily their, their background, their training, their professionalism. It's, it's their willingness to go, right? Struck by that. Again, we see the significance of partnerships here. This is a theme that we developed earlier in the book. Even Paul, as great as he was, could not do ministry alone. He was at Navy SEAL without any support, right? Couldn't do it alone. You see the significance of partnerships. So he goes and he spends time in Jerusalem and uh, Antioch, uh, these, these two cities. Now, you, you might be looking at this. Well, let me say a couple things. First of all, why, why was he so um, adamant about leaving and not staying in Ephesus? Most commentators believe that Paul was highly motivated to get to Jerusalem for Passover. And uh, tra- winter travel on the Mediterranean shut down around September and didn't follow uh, fire back up again until March. And they know that in this year, on AD 52, uh, that Passover fell in in early April. So Paul, uh, most likely in his desire to get to Jerusalem, did not want to to risk staying too long in Ephesus and and miss the boat. And and even if he could leave in March, wasn't guaranteed to get to Jerusalem on time. That's why a lot of commentators believe he was in a hurry to, to get out. Now, you may say, I'm reading this, Craig, and I don't see Jerusalem here in my text. Um, and it, depending on what version you have, you may or may not see it. But here's why we say that, um, that uh, there's, there's unique terminology here. Um, when he, verse 22, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Pretty much exclusively, anytime you see in Scripture, that terminology is always associated with Jerusalem. You always, in Scripture, the Old Testament, you always go up to Jerusalem. That sat high. You always go down from Jerusalem. And most commentators think that, that the church is, is there, because we know he went to the church at Antioch. The only other significant church that, we would, that we've interacted with was the Jerusalem church, and that is the church being talked about here. So that's why they think he was trying to get there for Passover and uh, to, uh, to see the brothers and sisters there, fortify the bonds there. He goes to Antioch, and then he leaves again. Uh, the grass did not grow under Paul's feet. And he ends up spending some time in Antioch and then leaving. I want to point out again, though, just in these two verses, there's a summary of 1,500 miles traveled just in two verses. It's another good reminder to us of how the book of Acts works. Because sometimes we read it and be like, oh, man, it was so exciting. And this happened. And, you know, some people, like, no, this is 1,500 miles in two verses. Uh, it, you know, it, it's compressed. And uh, this all took time and unfolded over time, weeks, months, years even. So he leaves. And he heads back to Galatia and Phrygia, places where he had gone on his first missionary journey, strengthening the churches. Luke then leaves Paul here for a little bit, and he introduces us to this, what we'll call, support staff. A little parenthesis here in the book of Acts. We meet this man named Apollos. Who is Apollos? Well, in verse 24, we see that he's a Jewish man. He's a native of Alexandria. These are two important details. Um, Alexandria was a significant place to be from. We said a couple of weeks ago, Athens was kind of the philosophical capital of the world. Alexandria would have been its rival. One of the largest libraries of the ancient world has been, was, was discovered. And we know Alexandria had one of the largest libraries in the ancient world. It uh, Significant Jewish population. Alexandria became a theological uh, hotbed. Uh, back during this time. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament was written in Alexandria. So this is a significant place to come from. Jeff and I would often laugh. Uh, we'd go to these pastor's conferences and such, right? We'd go to Moody and they would find out we're from Grand Rapids. And they'd be like, oh, whoa, Grand Rapids. And I'd, like literally, I, heard, I can't tell you how many times, like that's like the Jerusalem of America. Like, <laughs> it's all right. It's not that great, you know? And, and we'd also get like, books, you can get books, you know, and I'm like, well, yeah, we, we, you know, books are readily available, they, they grow on trees in Grand Rapids, actually, you know? <laughs> I need a theology book, I can just go back and pick, it. oh, there's Daryl Bach, and uh, you know, um, but that's what, like, oh, Alexandria, I mean, it was, it was a big deal, it was a significant place to uh, be from, he, uh, that's where he's from, he's eloquent, verse 24, he's a great communicator, He has a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. It says he's competent in the scriptures, verse 24. Why? Because verse 25, he had been instructed. He probably sat under some of the finest teachers available. And again, high Jewish population. He would have known the prophets. He would have known Torah. He was highly educated in the ways of the Old Testament. He was fervent in the spirits, verse 25. And I I think... And not the split hairs too much. It says fervent in spirit. If you look at some of the the possible alternate translations, fervent in the spirit, I wouldn't make too much of that difference. I I think the two really are, are linked. He's fervent in the spirit because of the influence that the spirit had in his life. And you see that connection throughout Scripture. He's fervent in the spirit. In verse 25, we see that he speaks accurately about Jesus. All right, He speaks accurately about Jesus. This word fervent, it means on fire means boiling. Literally, means to boil, to seethe. But this is in a good way. that we think of seething as negative. Like, oh, it's an anger. No, this is, this is a boiling, a seething, but, but it's in a good way. It's excitement. He loved the scriptures. He's passionate about the scriptures. The only other place we see this word uh, in the New Testament is in Romans 12. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. These are actually commands. I think we would tend to read this and go, oh, fervent in spirit. Well, that's a, uh, that's a personality trait. That's, that's an exuberant, outgoing person. Actually, this, this text here doesn't let us off the hook quite so easily because it's commanded that we be fervent. What is that? I, I've come across a lot of people, I know a lot of people who are very quiet, you know, reserved personality, but you start talking about something they're passionate about, college football, all of a sudden, you see something erupt in that person, right? Like they're, they're fervent. They start speaking about it with a passion. We had a, a boy in the youth group years ago here, Chris Carpenter. I don't know how many of you remember Chris Carpenter. Chris was uh, wheelchair bounding, and Chris was hu- super quiet, super reserved. But you started talking about classical music, and Chris, you could just tell right away, he'd kind of perk up, and he would go on and on, and I would just stand there. I would bring up, like, the two classical people I know, you know, just trying to get, and he would go on, and i just stand up pretending like I know. And I enjoy classical music, but I couldn't compete with Chris. But you could tell Chris was passionate about classical music. You could just tell, right? Jack Leeds, right? A lot of us know Jack Leeds, uh, who was here with one of our elders years ago, and Jack was a pretty quiet, reserved guy. You start talking about Jesus in the scriptures, you're like, that man loves Christ. Right? You know what I'm talking about? That's what we're being commanded here. That You know the scriptures. You know the word of God. And that, that's the thing that consumes you uh, the most. So fervency is not necessarily related to personality. Can be. It's part of it. For those of you who know Mike Leong. Is Mike even here today? One of our Chinese students. Like, you talk to Mike about scripture. Mike's passionate. Like, on Wednesday night in youth group, we're talking about something. And Mike's like, he, as a matter of fact, it was funny. We are talking about a topic that he's passionate about. And Pete kept avoiding him on purpose. And Mike was going to blow. He's like, Peace, like, oh, just a minute, Mike, and finally he got to chin. like, blah, 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 blah. you know, he's like speaking in tongues almost. No, he wasn't. Calm down, he wasn't, but almost, right? Uh, but that was passion, zeal. But it's not always that, right? Little to do that. That's why we're commanded to be fervent. And I believe that that commitment and fervency in Apollos and in our lives is fed and influenced by the Spirit of God. Something that's available to us all. But here's the thing. In verse 25, you come across this interesting statement: Paulus' knowledge and teaching was incomplete. It was incomplete. He spoke accurately about Jesus and fervently about Jesus, but what he spoke was incomplete. Interesting, right? Now, the reality is we can't speak to exactly where these deficiencies all were. A lot of ink has been spilt on that. Here's a few things we do know. Number one, we know he knew the baptism of John. He knew the baptism of John the Baptist, but apparently not the baptism that Jesus had commanded after the resurrection, right? At the very least, we could say that he had accepted John's testimony of the coming Messiah. All right, pretty confident we can say that. Apollos had accepted John the Baptist's teaching of the coming Messiah, and most likely he had faith in the prophecies of the Old Testament he just didn't have all the info yet. Now, there's a distinct possibility he knew of the life and teachings of Jesus, but maybe he wasn't totally informed regarding the details of the crucifixion and the atoning sacrifice and the resurrection, and probably wasn't aware of Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit there. Again, it's hard to say. He was speaking accurately, just not completely. I believe we can fairly say, you know, safely say that Paulus was, was a believer at this point, in the same sense, I and mean, maybe the best comparison in Scripture would be in the same way that Simeon and Anna in the temple were, were believers. Remember, those are two people who had their faith in the coming Messiah. You know, Simeon says, now I, can, now I can die. My eyes have seen the salvation of Israel. Simeon had faith. He had faith in God's Messiah, as did Anna. And I think that's probably an extent here with what you're seeing with Apollos. He had that belief. And to the best of his knowledge, at that point, he had faith in uh, the Messiah, That said, the takeaway here is that we must be sure, we are accurately speaking, the whole gospel. Because while what he had was accurate, it was incomplete. And incomplete information can be dangerous, right? Um, As I I was in sixth grade, I remember we were going camping. And my dad was kind of stressed and trying to get out that afternoon and he had to go back to work for something. And so he tells me, he says, Greg, can you, uh, the, the car needs a quart of oil. And I, I set it out in the garage. We're pulling the camper. Can you put a quart of oil in the car? I'm like, I, I'd never done it before. And I, he goes, well, I can show you. He goes, it's, it's the blue cap. You open the hood, the blue cap. And I'm like, oh, I can do that, Dad. He's like, you want me to show you? Of course, I'm a sixth grade boy. No, don't you just show me. I can, I can find the blue cap. He's like, okay. The dad goes back to work, I go out to the car, open the hood, guess what? There are two blue caps. I'm looking at both of them, never done this before, and uh, I choose the one that was the brighter of the blue. In my mind, that made the most sense. I would just say this, we had the most well-lubricated power steering system (laughs) of any car around, you know? Incomplete information. Uh, let, me, let me tell you one more incomplete, this, this is one of my favorites. When I, we were in uh, high school, we were playing in a championship, uh, regional championship game up in New Hampshire. And um, we had, uh, this game it was late in the game and it was close, I don't remember the score or really anything beyond this, but um, twice in this game the opposing catcher had been called for catcher's interference. And uh, you know, and, and so you're there batting and if the catcher puts his glove up and, and you, you nick his bat on your swing, that's like a walk, you're, you're a, a awarded first base automatically. So our number nine hitter was up. I remember this. Our number nine hitter was up, and our, and our coach called Kevin over. He said, hey, listen. He goes, go, go ahead and take your at-bat. But he said, stand, in the back of the bat, stand as far back in the batter's box as you can. He said, that guy keeps creeping up. And just in your swing, you know, just take a long swing. And he goes, maybe you'll hit the guy's glove. And, you know, and just trying to find a way to get the 9 9 guy on, on base. Kevin gets up the bat, and I'm not kidding. He does this, and the pitch comes, and Kevin goes and swings down, and this poor catcher just screams, because that ball, his bat came right down on the back of his glove, and he's like, ah, (laughs) ah, he throws it off, and the umpire looks at my, my coach is like, oh my word. Kevin was called out, as he should have been. Incomplete information, probably should have filled Kevin in a little bit more on what that swing should look like, other than just taking an axe chop on the back of the poor catcher's hand, right? Incomplete information is dangerous information. And that's where Apollos finds himself here. In spite of that, verse 26, he's bold in the synagogue. He's boldly proclaiming what he does know. But again, boldness is good, but when boldness is coupled with inadequate understanding of the scriptures, that can be dangerous. So we meet a little bit more detail now, the significance of Priscilla and Aquila in all of this. They take Apollos aside and explain to him more accurately, what God is doing. I think there's three points to learn here from Priscilla and Aquila as they pull him aside. Number one, their concern and their action and their initiative is an example to us. They sense something is not right and they take initiative. They take action. Another lesson we learn from them is this. They had the knowledge, tent makers had the knowledge to notice that something was off and then to instruct and correct, right? We are all responsible to know God's truth and identify error. That's the job of all of us, professional, seminary educated, and lay people, to know God's truth. Here's the third thing I love about them. They also had the wisdom to take him aside and instruct him in private. There was a humility and graciousness in their instruction, right? They did it privately. They weren't looking to shame him. They weren't looking to embarrass him. They weren't looking to make a point out of him. And I would just ask the question, have you ever criticized or tore down a teacher publicly or to someone else? Let Ignite teacher. Marco stinks when he preaches. Have you ever done that? that accomplishes nothing. Growth and learning takes place in environments like Priscilla and Aquila created. Ajit Fernando, in his commentary, writes this. The graciousness of the helper, Priscilla and Aquila, and the teachableness of the learner, Apollos, give an environment conducive to growth. Right? Right? Priscilla and Aquila demonstrate an example for all of us believers. They know the truth. They support those in ministry. They are theologically competent. They care about the accuracy and content of biblical teaching and preaching. And they're willing to speak up and do it the right way. I like that about them. And the other thing, too, they put their fear aside and engaged. Right? I mean, this probably took some courage. Here's Apollos, highly educated dude from Alexandria. phenomenal communicator, people liked him, powerful dude in a lot of ways. And they were willing to go and speak truth to him. I like that. It also speaks to Apollos, his teachability. He is willing to listen and learn. Again, all those same things we just said, a highly educated, gifted man from a significant city, and he exhibited great humility when pulled aside by a tent maker and his wife. Wasn't a rabbi, wasn't a professor. This was a tent maker and his wife, and the great Apollos, educated from Alexandria, is willing to put his pride aside and learn. Humility, teachability. My experience in my own life, and what I often see, is that sometimes the longer we go in our faith and the more learned we become, the less teachable we become. And that's the problem. I should always remain humble, willing to hear, listen. Apollos was like that. My favorite basketball player of all time, Tim Duncan in the NBA, he played for the San Antonio Spurs for years. And Tim Duncan, one of the greatest centers that ever played the game, first ballot Hall of Famer. And I remember an interview sometime, one time with Tony Parker, who was his point guard all those years and won three or four championships with San Antonio. And someone asked him, what, does make, what makes Tim Duncan great? Tony Parker didn't miss a beat. He said, You know what makes him great? He said, here he is. He's an all-star, probably one of the best players in the world, if not the best player in the world at the time. And his greatest attribute is that he is teachable. Tim Duncan is teachable, and that's why Tim Duncan is great. That's an awesome lesson for us to learn, right? Apollos accepts the instruction, and then he desires to take this new information and go on. And he's a wrecking ball, right? And they have no qualms about sending him out, which affirms the validity of his faith, affirms the fact that he received this instruction. And he goes back to Achaia. Achaia, by the way, that's where Paul had just come from. That's Corinth and all of those places. And he lets it go there. He greatly helps the believers who had believed through grace. Again, Luke's making a sh- making sure we understand that it was God's grace that led to their being believers here in Achaia. God's grace is, is what sustained them. God's grace in the midst of attacks and hostility. God's grace, salvation, only possible for God's grace. God's grace. God's grace had come there. People had gotten saved. And now Apollos is going back and ministering there. And I want us to understand and remember, this is where Paul had been beaten up. Not large numbers of converts, but he softened the soil there. And I think this serves us too, communicating to us, be careful how we define success. Because remember, Paul went through there, had some success, but it wasn't all that great. I think if Paul turned in his missionary numbers there to some mission board, so they'd be like, this guy's terrible. Right? But Paul softened the ground. Paul made a difference. And now, Apollos is able to go back through into the ground that had been softened up by Paul, and he's able to make a huge impact. He becomes this great colleague of Paul's. Uh, Paul refers to him all over the place in Corinthians. Who, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Later in 1 Corinthians 16, you see Paul and Apollos working together for the gospel. Apollos becomes huge, and the gospel works here. Partner with Paul. He has opportunities due to Paul's previous difficult ministry. Paul took some licks that allowed Apollos to be effective later on, and it wasn't glorious or glamorous for Paul. I thought about our own church's history. Name that you may have heard, Al Cuthbert. Name probably doesn't mean a lot to some of you. Al Cuthbert stepped in some, I don't know, 27, 30 years ago when Eastmont was about to go away. And he came, Calvary Baptist, stepped in to help us. Al Cuthbert came. And it wasn't glorious, it wasn't glamorous. And I'll just help the church survive and help transition to a church to hand it off to a man named Jeff Burr. You may have heard of him, at least. And what Al did in that brief time he was here, it wasn't glamorous, but it softened the ground. Paul was successful. And Apollos stepped in later on. And that's the way it works sometimes. Sometimes we're going to look, we're going to make you know, reach out to people, and we're like, man, this doesn't seem like God's. Just keep doing what you're doing. Keep giving truth. Keep being faithful. And you may hand someone off at one point, and five, six, seven years down the road, Apollos is going to step in. Because of the work you did softening the soil, Apollos is going to have opportunity for fruitful ministry. Right? This is what this looks like sometimes. Solid work by Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila being done by those uh, beyond Paul. This is what it takes in ministry. More people are needed to engage and take gospel ministry seriously. I've been encouraged the past couple weeks. I won't give their names, but I'm aware of two brothers here over the past couple weeks who took gospel initiative with people that I couldn't catch up with between services, but they did, and took the opportunity with one guy to share the gospel with them. Another guy to help take them somewhere down to a class because there wasn't anyone to do it. He's like, I'm going to take that guy down and show love and concern. like that, That's it. Like Seeing a need, I can fill in. I will do this. I will take responsibility. I will take initiative. This is how growth happens, Right? You see how this all happens? It all comes together. Paul had built into a Priscilla and Aquila, who had also ministered to Paul. Priscilla and Aquila built into Apollos, who becomes a fireball and is now equipped to go to Achaia and lay waste to the opposition there. He goes out and he makes a significant impact, right? So much so that we read these things about him here in 1 Corinthians. It's a shared task. It's shared responsibility. The job is bigger than any one person. Apollos becomes effective in ministry and a ki because of this interconnectedness and the body of Christ working together in a beautiful way. I met a kid the other day. Uh, Kathy and I were down in Grand Rapids downtown going to a concert at Van Andel, and we get in the elevator and there's this kid and his dad. And uh, long story short, he ends up uh, they're going to the concert as well and find out that. Uh, you know, the dad was like, where's the arena? And we kind of tell him something like, oh, you're new to Grand Rapids. And he said, well, I'm from Kalamazoo. And his son, Andrew, speaks up. And he's like, oh, he goes, I'm actually going to Cornerstone. And I was like, oh, cool. I'm like, actually, I'm speaking there for chapel tomorrow. And he's like, oh, really? So we start talking. He starts asking me some ministry questions. And and you're kind of like, not just everyone asks those types of questions. So we ended up connecting uh, the next day at Cornerstone. We said, "Let's get together for lunch." And Andrew, Andrew and I get together, and he tells me a story. And he says, uh, "He says, yeah. He goes, I, I really wasn't a believer, but he, he said uh, in high school uh, he said baseball was our god, and um, and we were marginally church attenders. And he said my my uh, parents took me though. My brother became a Christian and took me to youth group, and there was this one youth leader." who invested in me and that drew me in and I became a, a believer and he said I became passionate about ministry and then he said I, I came here and, and Andrew goes to another good church here in the area and he said I went to their college class the first week and these people just reached out to me and loved me so I decided to be part of that college class and he said now I want to I want to go into to ministry and this is I want to go into missions and he's, he's unpacking this whole thing and i remember sitting there going hey Andrew I said how about we do this how about once a month me and you just get together for lunch Andrew's not going to come to our church he's going to another great church I'm never going to know the youth leaders who impacted Andrew's life. I'm probably never going to know the college ministry people who impacted his life. But they made a difference. And I want to build into Andrew because this guy, he's got potential for ministry, right? All interconnected. All interconnected. That's what it takes. We are all building together. I asked our worship team to come up. We're going to close in a song. I just want to throw out a couple points of application. Cultivate fervency in the spirits. This, again, just comes from knowing the Word of God, spending time with God, right? How does, how does Zach, my son, who has spent all of probably 17 days in the state of Massachusetts, how does he become a Boston, a Boston Celtics fan? Right? Well, first of all, he's got the Pistons here, so there's not much. But, uh, kidding, kidding. Right? No. He watches a game with Dad, and he watches another game with Dad. And he sits there, and then he starts getting interested in some of the players, and then and then he watches a playoff game and experiences the heartbreak of a loss and then the, heartbreak of, and then the joy of a win, and, and, right? And it, and it grows over time. That, that, that's how you become fervent. That's how you become a fan, right? It's the same thing with the Lord. Be, be fervent in spirit. Develop that by spending time with God. Keep pursuing biblical uh, competency. Know who Jesus is. Understand Jesus, right? One commentator wrote, it's no coincidence that the New Testament begins with four books on the life of Jesus. Get to know who Jesus is. Be a humble learner. Be a humble learner. Learn. You don't know it all. You can't do it by yourself. Be a humble learner. Be wise in how you confront and instruct. And then find a place to serve and contribute to the mission. The mission requires many contributors. Some of you contribute over and above, some of you don't contribute a whole lot. Find a place. Serve, give, watch God work.